we are coming so close to the end of First Thessalonians. We're in a section in chapter 5 that you and I might be tempted to read so quickly and to do so without much thought because if you, like me, have read Paul's letters to say nothing of the other New Testament epistles for any length of time, you know that these are common closings, common benedictions, we would say. And if you're like me, you would read introductory statements and closing statements so very fast because they seem to be perfunctory. They appear in all of these letters as though someone is obligated to write them and that they don't mean much. But to do that, of course, especially with the Word of God, would be very, very careless on our parts. Careless because in the introductions and in the closings of these New Testament letters are rich truths, so very rich. And we dare not read them quickly and with a cavalier attitude because, well, we're at the end. Let's hurry up and finish. Let's do what we need to do to read what I've read a hundred, a thousand times before and therefore miss so much not only practical truth but doctrinal truth as well. In fact, all of the songs that we sang this morning, which will now, of course, make so much sense to you, which is why I and those who prepare such music think and talk about the same passages that will be preached and what songs in their selection would be apropos, would be greatly applicable to what we're reading. And if you sang those last two songs particularly, he will hold me fast. The Lord is our salvation. And almost every line is speaking about the content of the message that we bring to you this morning. This closing, which begins in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, is as follows. We ask you, brothers, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. 
abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We are now at verse 23. And from verse 23 onward, Paul is certainly giving us a closing, a benediction. And in verses 23 and 24 are given what we could call a benedictory prayer. Or as some commentators and theologians, and I think rightly so, call these concluding ending prayers wish prayers. I wish this for you. I want this for you. I'm praying this for you. I'm wishing, wanting, believing, hoping, and praying that these things are so. That's what he means. And the Apostle Paul prays a very magnificent prayer to God in closing this first letter to the Thessalonians. His wish prayer is a prayer of a request for these believers, and it's twofold. The first is verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely or entirely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his wish prayer. And then there's a second aspect, or the second of these twofold wish requests. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now when we come to verses 23 and 24, as this letter is closing, to what is Paul actually referring when he prays this way for these Christians? Well, you say it's fairly easy. You just read the two verses and that's what he's praying. Well, that would be true as far as it goes. But it might surprise you that when Paul prays this way for them, he is centering his focus not upon the Thessalonians themselves per se. Oh, they're, they're included in the prayer. But it's actually not focused so much on them as this prayer is focused upon God himself and what God will do, what what he must do, what he can do that the Thessalonians cannot do for themselves. And if you have your uh, outline with you, it's on the back of the Lord's Day Bulletin. If you see from these outline points to the message of today, you'll see that this particular focus, the focus on God, is what is to be emphasized here in these two small verses. That's the emphasis. That's the focus. 
Now, the Thessalonians, as I said, are certainly a part of it, and so are you, and so am I. We're a part of this ongoing prayer of Paul's. Certainly we are. But the emphasis, the focus, is upon what God is purposing to do. That's the focus. And the reason this is so is because only God can ultimately accomplish what is being referenced here. Only God. Indeed, we could set these verses up by asking a series of questions regarding our salvation. I mean, we just sang it, didn't we? The Lord is my salvation. But what do we really mean when we sing that? What's our our emphasis? And what are these verses saying when it says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Where's the emphasis? Where where does it lie? Well, there, there are a lot of questions that one could ask about where the emphasis of these verses lie. And I say that there are a number of questions because when Christians read these things at a cursory level, at a perfunctory level, ho-hum, read the closings, let's get on to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. No, let's pause, let's take some time, and let's ask ourselves the question, where's the focus? And if the focus is right, then the verses come alive. And when the verses come alive, they come alive to the idea that Christians often very much struggle with regarding their salvation and perhaps their assurance and also their perseverance. You know and I know and maybe you're one of them and maybe I've been one of them too who will regularly in our Christian life ask this question, can I persevere? Am I assured? Will I hold fast? Will I make it? Will I come to the end and not make it? As I take my final breath, if I'm conscious of such a breath, Will I have the absolute and profound confidence that I'm on my way into the very presence of Jesus Christ? I mean, these are are important questions, aren't they? And Christians around the globe ask these questions. Some believers, maybe like these Thessalonians, under persecution and great suffering, And when that persecution is there and that suffering is at its heightened sense, maybe they're asking the question, do you love me? Do you care about me, God? Lord Jesus, where are you? Do you have me in the palm of your hand? Will you hold me fast? Look, I've been in pastoral ministry now for almost 40 years. And maybe near the top of the list of the questions that I'm asked, whether it's in the counseling room or as a pastor to a member of the congregation or answering a question by mail, email, on the phone, 
whatever venue it is, maybe at the top of that list are people who struggle with whether or not they know with surety that they are being held fast. Isn't it so? And here might be a set of questions that we could ask that I believe these verses answer. Listen to some of these questions. Maybe you'll resonate with some of them. Perhaps resonating either in the past or in the present, and if not, perhaps in the future. Here are such questions. How can a person make it to heaven? Is it partly man's work and partly God's work? How can one who commits his or her life to Christ in genuine faith know with certainty that he or she is going to be with Christ in glory? It's a great question. Can one be able to make himself completely holy as Verse 23 seems to be saying, can one be able to make himself completely holy or is it all left up to God to do? Here's another set of questions. If complete or total or entire holiness is required to be in the forever presence of God, how or more precisely whom will it be who guarantees such perfection. I mean, here's what verse 23 says, now may the God of peace sanctify you completely or entirely. How do I know that there's going to to be a complete and entire and total sanctity of life, my life? Who's going to do that? Who's going to guarantee that? I mean, he's talking about perfection here. Entire perfection, entire holiness. Will will I need to be one of the ones who ensures this? Do I even possess in and of myself the capacity, the strength, the moral character in order to guarantee my own complete holiness which makes me fit or ready or made for heaven? These are incredibly important questions. Here's another set of questions. When Paul speaks here of being blameless, do you see that at the end of verse 23? And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who can say that if I'm going to him or to be examined by him or he's coming in his second coming glory and I'm standing here, that I will be in fact blameless. Blameless? Blameless? Faultless at his coming? And how much of this blamelessness, this faultlessness in my presentation is my responsibility? All of it, none of it, some of it, how much of it is God's doing? Is it my work or his work or both of our works? What happens, by the way, if I thought 
It's my work. It's, it's my work to be faultless and blameless. Uh, what happens when my strength and my power run out? Is it only when my strength and my power runs out that his strength and his power takes over? Or, or do I live in his strength and his power, uh, not doing anything but only relying on his? Some people teach that. Some people believe that. When Paul prays this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, is he himself somewhat unsure? I mean, he does say twice here in these verses, may the God and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. May, is that like maybe so, maybe not? Maybe? I hope so. I'm wishing, I'm, I'm praying, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that this is a good thing, but I'm praying that if you don't make it, God will be merciful somehow. Is he praying for God to bring it to pass on their behalf, or is he confident that he will? How about a few more questions? You ready? How about this? Is it my own faithfulness in my calling? Look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It says he calls you. Well, is it my own faithfulness in my calling to Christ, which tips the scale of God's affirmation of me in in my final day? Or is it God's own faithfulness, which is added to my faithfulness that tips the scale? Or, Or, in other words, To whom does Paul appeal for such faithfulness and blamelessness and faultlessness? Is it God's own? Is it my own? Is it a combination of the two? I mean, these are are profound questions. And maybe you haven't struggled often with these, but many beleaguered Christians have. So, this isn't just a quick closing, is it? I mean, these two verses, they scream at us with something. And let me tell you what I think they scream at us for and by. Let me give you two principles. You see it there in your notes, don't you? Let's let's start off. Let me start off by giving you the first principle in outline form of some of the answers to these aforementioned questions, and they are great questions. Here's the first principle. It's it's encapsulated in verse 23, and here it is. Our God of peace, our God of peace will see to it that his children, his spiritual children, are in fact, indeed, made completely holy. That's what verse 23 says, first part of it. Our God of peace will see to it that his spiritual children are made completely holy. That's the principle. That's what it's saying. That's the doctrine. That's what you can bank your life on. And will preserve them, his spiritual children, faultlessly at Christ's second coming. That's the latter part of verse 23. So if you put them together, you could say it like this. 
in answer to all those questions that I pose. Our God of peace. This is what you can say to yourself. This is what you can say to others. This is what you can say to the Lord in your praise of him. Our God of peace will see to it that his spiritual children are ultimately made completely holy and they will be preserved faultlessly when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. Now, I know that's just a first point, but I think that may deserve a hallelujah. There you go. You say, but prove it, prove it. Okay, let's go into these these two verses. Let's go into this first verse, verse 23. Here's what he's saying. Look at it again. Now may the God, and now you know the answer to that question. It's not a may be, may be not. No, it's, it's, it's a wish prayer, yes, but it's a confident wish prayer. It's, it's the prayer that Paul uses all of his theology, which is at his disposal by the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a maybe he will, maybe he won't. The may is he will. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Who's the you? The Thessalonian church. But not just the Thessalonian church, all true believers, right? So he's not talking to one individual person in Thessalonica. He's talking to the local church in Thessalonica. You, you the church, plural, you the church. But it's extended to all of us as true, bona fide, genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the truth. God, the God of peace himself, will sanctify you. He'll sanctify us. That's why the focus in in these verses is on God. The God of peace will do this. In fact, you'll see as we go through this message that three times, three times in these verses, two and Two times in verse 23 and once in verse 24, the emphasis, the the focus is on God. What he will do, what he can do, what he must do or it can't be done. The God of peace himself will do something, verse 23. And the end of verse 23, you and I, our whole spirits and souls and bodies will be kept blameless. And verse 24, he who calls you is faithful and what? He will surely do it. I mean, what confidence can be derived from such a thing? I mean, three times, my friends, the emphasis is not on you or me. It's on him and what he can do, will do, must do. And if he doesn't do it, it cannot be done. This is... This is glorious truth. And the first thing that you need to notice about verse 23 is that attribute of God to which Paul calls our attention, and that attribute is what? Peace. Our God of peace. Now look, if you're reading these closings, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, other closings of Paul, he wrote 13 letters 13 epistles of the New Testament, and not in every single one of them, but in a lot of them, he mentions in the closing the concept of peace. And if you and I aren't careful, we read these closings so fast and we say, yes, 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 peace and love, 
peace and joy. We read the introductions, joy and peace that I pray for you. God grant you joy and peace. And then we get on to the meat of the letter. But don't do such a thing because these things are rock, bed, solid. Solid to us. I mean, if you are asking questions about where you're going to spend eternity, the Bible says in this passage, now may the God of peace do something. And the God of peace that is selectively given to us with a purpose. And what kind of purpose is that? Well, think of it this way. Before you and I came to faith in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, that means that instead of having a peaceful relationship with God, we were at enmity with God. God was our enemy, and he was our enemy. Now, that's a sad tale. But when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God now grants you, instead of judgment based upon such hostility, he grants you peace. And it's not just the peace of fellow relationships in the local church body. That's a glorious thing. And in fact, that's already mentioned up here in our initial section of the benediction, isn't it? When it says at the end of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. Now, he's, he's tackled that idea. Look, you've got to have harmony. You've got to have unity in the body. Be at peace among yourselves. And so it is there in terms of our relational responses to one another. We could call it our horizontal relationship with each other. Be at peace among yourselves. Yes, but here, here he's talking about God and you. God and this vertical relationship, this God of peace, the God who grants peace, the God who is peace, will actually be at peace with you. Is there any more glorious thing than that? You're at peace with God. He's granted you peace because he's the God of peace. You you don't have hostility. You're not the recipient of his anger. He loves you with the love of his son, Jesus, whom God so loved us He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, which is the most important part of that verse, whoever believes in him, that's the operative idea, whoever believes in him. If you don't believe in him, and if you continue to reject him, and if you stiff arm him for the rest of your life, then that offer of peace with you shall not be granted. And you will not be at peace with him. You will be in an eternal, avenging relationship by him. But if you've placed your confidence, your trust, your faith, the whole reliance of your life, your future, your eternity, upon this God who is described here as the God of peace, the God who makes peace, the God who is peace, the one who takes not hostility and forever holds it over eternally on your head, but a God who will extend peace to you forever and ever and ever. This is why this focus of this benediction is on him 
and not on us. He's the God of peace. And by the way, the word peace here, it's actually derived undoubtedly from the Hebrew term shalom. Shalom. What does shalom mean? Wholeness. You know, when I've been in Israel twice now, and when, of course, Hebrew speakers speak to one another, they say shalom when they come up, and they say shalom when they leave. And, of course, it could be perfunctory. It could be something very ordinary. It could be just what you say. It's like a greeting or an ending. But the very basis upon which they can even say such a thing is because shalom means something like this. I wish you a wish prayer. I want you to have wholeness, completeness, fullness, fullness of joy, fullness of relationship, fullness of blessing. It just, it's a kind of word that brings to the mind the idea, I wish everything good to happen in your life. Wholeness, completeness, fullness. That's, that's what's being referred to here. This is a peace in relationships. This is a peace in this vertical relationship between you and your God. You want wholeness and blessing and completeness and fullness, and he says, I extend it to you. Receive my son, and you shall have peace. Not the absence of all adversity, but the peace to overcome all adversity. This is, this is what he's saying. And it also helps, doesn't it, answer some of those earlier questions that I, that I posed? Look at the text again. Look at verse 23. Now may the God of peace, and then what's the next word in your text? What is it? What's the next word in the text? Himself. So who is the one who's doing the entire and complete sanctity of your life, the sanctifying work of your life? Now may the God of peace himself. Doesn't that answer a question? Doesn't that answer the dilemma? It is ultimately up to God himself, the God of peace, to completely sanctify my life. Why? Because given all of my power, all of my resources, all that I am, all that I could do, even if I wanted it seemingly every day of my life and I'm fighting for it to do everything right and to be the right kind of person and to be a person who is sanctified entirely and completely, especially when I come to die, I will fail. I'll fail. I'll become slack and lazy and impotent and powerless to bring all of that entire sanctification to pass in my life. In fact, just as I was preparing for this message, not just this week, but this morning, sitting at my desk here at the church, I thought to myself, I can't even preach this message with all power, with faultlessness and blamelessness because I know what a rotten, vile, stinking sinner I am. I can't do it. I mean, I can be the mouthpiece. I could be the organ through which the words come. 
But please, if you examined my life, you'd say, him? Now, that's not referring to some sort of overt, unchecked sin for which I haven't repented. But it is this. If you're asking me the question, who can make me completely or entirely sanctified, I tell you I do not have the resources in myself, for myself, with myself, by myself. I don't have it. I'm going to run out of such resources. I'm going to run out of such consistency and such hope and such power and such strength. That's why this verse, as Paul prays it, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. The emphasis is on the right place. The focus is in the right place. It's on him. The God of peace himself will sanctify you entirely. Anybody glad of that? Because there's no hope for heaven without it. There's no hope for heaven without it. You say, what do you mean there's no hope for heaven? There was a man who lived the perfect life. I prayed it during the pastoral prayer this morning. He lived the perfect life, the Lord Jesus. He didn't sin once. He, 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 he was a man, to be sure, and he was um, experiencing all of life's vicissitudes. He was tired. He was hungry. Uh, but he always had the crowds coming to him, both for his teaching ministry and for his healing ministry, and he also had his detractors, all of these supposed elite religious leaders who were always supposed to be honoring such a fellow teacher, a rabbi, but they were always all about trying to undermine him, to assault him, to, to, to discover who this man really is and what, what he's not doing for the Lord and how he's not responding to the law as he otherwise should. And the more they investigated and the more, the more they tried to entrap him, the more they realized there's, there's no way we can do it. And the Gospels account to the fact that it says, and they went away from him because they couldn't entrap him. Uh, they couldn't trick him. Why? Because he lived the perfect life. And he responded to every one of those situations with the perfect responses. And he had all power residing in him, the very power of the Holy Spirit, because God was bestowing on him such power by the work of the Spirit so that he could not ever be undermined, he could never be tempted beyond his ability, that he would never be someone who would fail, for whom the power source would peter out so that he could not respond in the way that he otherwise should, and he was blameless, faultless. No wonder I say, because of his perfect, obedient life in my place, I can have the God of peace sanctify me entirely. Because not only do I rely on the death of Christ, 
I also hang my ultimate hope on the obedience of Christ. You say, well, why is that important? Let me tell you why that's important. It's important because if all that God had done, listen very carefully, if all that God had done was to bring Jesus to the earth right before the cross, no one ever having seen him live his life, no one ever seeing the demonstration of the obedient, perfect life of Christ, then the cross of Christ and my believing in such a cross, my relying on such a cross, would have only brought me, like Adam, into an innocent condition. Innocent. My sins are forgiven. But what I need is not just a neutral position like Adam. I don't just need my sins forgiven. I also need the perfect life of Christ to be imputed to my account. I need this life of Christ who was the only one who was qualified to be perfectly obedient to the dictates and demands of the law of God. And because he perfectly fulfilled all of the righteous demands of the law of God, and because he was that perfect sacrifice, because he was that perfect obedient man, he was also the only one qualified to die on that cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. You see? I needed both the life of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, and the death of Christ. I needed both of those things. And what happened was, it didn't just bring me the death of Christ to a neutral position, like like Adam was in a neutral position. Before the fall, Adam was innocent. Adam hadn't sinned. But I needed more than that. I needed not just a neutral position, I needed a positive position. I needed someone who in my place could be the righteous fulfiller of all the demands of the law of God so that I needed both Christ in his life and Christ in his death. And because of such a thing, you and I are brought into a peaceful relationship with God on the basis of Christ's righteous life and his sacrificial atoning death. I'm not only neutral, I'm positive. I'm in the positive position, in the righteous position, in the blameless position. Now read verse 23 again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And do you know, you don't have to turn there, but in John's gospel, in what Jesus prays in John 17 is perfectly right. Do you know that Jesus actually speaks of this kind of righteousness in John 17, his own righteousness, and he speaks of it in this sanctification language. He does say in chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, speaking of the disciples and everyone who would come after them as disciples, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And then notice this, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake, for every believer's sake, including those initial disciples, for their sake, I consecrate myself. Consecrate. 
That's in the same family of words here, sanctify, sanctification. I set myself apart. I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I consecrate myself so that they could be consecrated in the truth. Do you see that, my friends? Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, satisfied all the demands of divine justice, and he also agreed with joy to go to the cross to also take care of the sin problem. So now I have the sin problem taken care of, and I also have the righteousness problem taken care of because God says there'll be no one in my presence who isn't righteous. And of course, if you and I say, well, one day the Bible says I'm going to stand in God's presence, yeah, well, you have to be righteous. You have to be holy. And every single one of us, man, woman, and child, save Jesus Christ, would say, then I'm out. I'm out. book of James says you sin one way in one time, you're guilty of what? All. Okay, so the first time you sin, you're out. You're not righteous. You can't fulfill the law's righteous demands. You're out. That's why you need Christ. Remember I read a couple of weeks ago of J. Gresham Machen, the one who founded Westminster Theological Seminary, and he was dying at 55 years of age of pneumonia in South Dakota, having taken that trip there. And I read from his book to you. And the last thing he ever wrote was to his friend John Murray, who was his theology professor at Westminster. And he said, probably not realizing that he would be dead in a few hours, he sent him a telegram and he said, I'm so thankful for the obedience of Christ. No hope without it. It It's the last thing he ever wrote. No hope without it. The obedience of Christ. That's the only way, my friends, that verse 23 can be true. Now may the God of peace himself, he will do it, sanctify you entirely, completely, fully, to the end because of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it can happen. Remember when we were going through the book of Philippians and I kept, remember, uh, kept reminding you of this phrase over and over and over again. It goes like this, he who in you. He who in you. That's Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will what? Complete it. If, if God is bringing a true divine work in your soul. It doesn't mean you sit on easy street. It doesn't mean you relax and you don't do anything. It actually motivates you to be what you know you're called to be. It's it's God working in you and pushing you because he's our ultimate shalom. And we must have him. We must have his work, and we do. And the only and ultimate reason we're righteous and blameless is that the God of Shalom, who both grants it and who sustains it in and through our lives, is providing it. So thankful for Christ and his obedience. No hope without it. There's no hope without it. 
our God of peace, remember our principle, our God of peace will see to it that his spiritual children are made completely holy. Now, you and I, to be sure, are on a gradual but steady ultimate course of being fully, entirely, and completely set apart and made ready to live in the holy presence of this awesome and holy God. And you say, hurry up the process, why don't you? It seems that I take three steps forward and then two steps back. I know. I've sung the song. I've been there. I live it too. And it can be frustrating and backbraiding, backbreaking, and it could be something that We just push and push, and we pull and we pull, and it seems like sometimes we don't see the reward for the payoff. But don't be discouraged. The God of peace himself will see to it. He'll see to it. You say, yeah, but you've said before, he'll see to it by putting trials and tests in your life that make it happen. Well, that comes with it. Yes, that comes with it. And when it comes with it, you need to say hallelujah because the one who's bringing them to you is himself perfectly and righteously holy and knows what he's doing. And when he does what he does, you and I will be presented one day. And that's, that's the next part of this verse. Do you see it in the next part of verse 23? Not a a maybe, not a hope so. This is a fact. This is a prayer that Paul is praying. And may your, that's the hour of the Thessalonian Christians, and may our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my friends, do not forget that when he says, the God of peace himself, he says it here again. And where does the emphasis lie? Where is the focus? Your soul, your spirit, your body be kept blameless. Do you keep yourself blameless? You say, well, I try. I try. But here it goes back to one of those questions. Can you be kept blameless with your own resources? No. No, I can't. Left to myself, I'm done. I'm out of gas. Uncle, I give up. And we feel like that some days, don't we? I can't do it, Lord. I can't function. I can't think straight. I can't be who I'm called by you to be because the power seems not to be evident today. Well, then call on such power. Call on it. I got a call from someone just as I was studying. Called. I need you. Talk to me. Help me. So I spoke to this person and provided comfort and counsel. And I didn't want to leave the conversation until we prayed, right? You pray. Let me pray. And I prayed this kind of prayer. You think when this verse is on your mind, you probably are thinking about it, praying about it? Here's what I prayed your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Well, I can't, I can't keep myself blameless. I'm, I'm called to be obedient, yes, 
But this is a passage that's not talking about my own individual, gradual, and sometimes it seems very partial sanctification. This verse is not talking about that. That's not what Paul's praying for. He's praying for the divine side. He's praying for what he knows in concrete with the focus being where it needs to be that only God could bring us to glory in this way. Do you see it? He says, your whole spirit and soul and body. By the way, not talking about the three-partite view of man. He's not talking about man is constitutively made up of spirit, soul, and body as though there are three parts to a person. That's not true. Only two parts to a person, right? The physical and the non-physical. The physical, that's your body. The non-physical, that's your soul and your spirit and your mind and your conscience and your affections. All of those things are stacked up on each other. And what he does here is he actually uses two of the non-physical words in our Bible to describe us, spirit and soul. He could have used conscience. He could have used will. He could have used affections. He could have used mind. Look, if, if, if this means we're a three-partite kind of person, spirit, soul, and body, then what did Jesus mean when he says that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Is, is, is that four-part, and is he contradicting the three-part of Paul here? No. He's just stacking up uh, to, to speak of totality, to speak of entirety. Do you see it here? May your whole spirit your whole soul, your whole body. He could say your whole mind, your whole affections, the whole physicality of you, who you are, the whole spirituality of who you are, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just talking about totality, isn't he? He's talking about the whole of you, everything about you physically and everything about you spiritually, your whole spirit, your soul, your mind, your conscience, your will, your affections, your rationality, your physicality, it's all there, and he's saying, be kept blameless. Do you notice that phraseology, be kept blameless? If you and I can't keep ourselves blameless, then who's the one keeping us blameless? Do you see the... You see the the English there? Be kept blameless. In the passive sense, not as though you and I are entirely passive. Don't get me wrong. But Paul is using a certain kind of way to enforce, to refocus that it is God who is keeping us blameless. We are kept blameless. Do you see that? And, and because that's true... It's not as though you and I, off the hook, put your foot off the gas, put it in neutral, don't worry about it, just let go and let God. No. We are called upon to be blameless. But he's not talking about gradual sanctification here. He's talking about entire sanctification, definitive sanctification, full and complete sanctification. In fact, the word sanctification in the sense that Paul is talking about it here is what we normally say when we use the word glorification. The end result, the end goal, the end of it all. He's not talking about all of the middle that we generally call sanctification, and he does use the word here, 
But you'd be interested to know that in the New Testament, the idea of progressive or gradual sanctification is actually somewhat rarely used. The, the, the sense of sanctification in our New Testaments is the idea that God has justified you and that he's in the process, yes, of sanctifying you, but when Paul speaks of it, he speaks mainly, and as do the other Bible writers, the idea that the sanctification is the total package, the idea that you and I are called and therefore then set apart. That's the word sanctification, set apart unto holiness. Now, it will happen that you are holy, it will happen in that gradual sense, and it will take a long time, of course, that's why we're on the earth, most of us, as long as we are, and we live as many years as we do, because it's that gradual process, but here, he's talking about the kind of setting apartness of holiness, so when it reaches its final climax, you and I are utterly sanctified. I I just find that so encouraging. Yes, I have to work hard, and yes, I need the power source, but God promises, and even the prayer of Paul here is going to be answered, that your whole spirit and soul and body would, in fact, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, if you want a a label, if you want a historical, theological label, this is the perseverance of the saints. This is what that is. It's right there in your Bibles. If someone comes up to you and says, yeah, you know, you guys, you reform people, you you, you always want to talk about these labels, and yeah, but where is it in the Bible? Right there. It's right there. That's, That's putting it probably not in the perseverance of the saints, although that's legitimate. Let's say it this way, the preservation by God of the saints. How about that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm working to persevere. That's true. But I, in myself, am not going to be able to persevere in my own strength and power. God is the one who will preserve me. And I will be kept blameless. When? At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. At Christ's coming. You say, how do you... How do you teach that? How how is that being taught? 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him or from him, the origin of source, you from God are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Do you know that in Christ I became sanctification? I became set apart. And God continues to keep me in the blameless condition of being set apart as holy unto him. And yes, he's he's chiseling away and he's knifing his way through the flesh and the world has all its allurements and, and Satan is out there and he's doing his plying trade and yes, even my own remaining sin needs to be dug out and, and destroyed. And if you're a true Christian, that's exactly what God is doing. It's exactly what he's doing. He is on an unrelenting quest to ensure that every single person who has been set apart by grace to be blameless shall, in fact, make it to heaven 
as a blameless one in Christ. What a, what a, what a glorious truth. And you thought you were just reading the closing and it meant, I'm done. I've read the book. Well, we're not even done. How about the second principle? I mean, if the first is this, our God of peace will see to it that his spiritual children are made completely holy and he will preserve them faultlessly at Christ's second coming. Here's this short verse, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. What's the principle? Here it is. Our God of faithfulness, not just our God of peace, but our God of faithfulness will fulfill this holy set-apartness, this holy calling of his children to full and complete and final salvation. That's what he means. That's verse 24. You know, these, these, are, these are memory verses, my friends. Think about it. He who calls you is what? Faithful. How could we ever serve a God who wasn't completely and perfectly faithful, who might not be able to deliver on some of his promises. It's one thing to make a promise. You make a promise. I make a promise. And half of them are more. Three quarters. Ninety percent. We fail. Yep, I'll do that. I'll do that today. Count on me. Hey, you know, it's 1159.59. You said you were gonna, oh, you just you just don't know what kind of day I had. And then we start the excuse train. And we got a lot of boxcars on the excuse train, don't we? Half the promises I give to people are the ones I struggle with the most because I shouldn't have made such a promise because I'm never going to be faithful to keep it. But Jesus Christ kept every promise. And he lived that perfect life. And when he comes, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you, this great God, our Lord Jesus Christ, he is faithful. He will surely do it. Look, if you don't come out of this message with anything else, come out with this. God is faithful. God is faithful. He'll take care of you in your darkest hour, in your most bleak condition. He'll preserve you. He'll keep you. You have doubts about that? I struggle with doubts about that. My own dear wife was standing in this place, racked in her body with cancer. And she was saying, I, 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 I know the truth. I, I know it in the sense that I've, I've read it, but now that I'm experiencing the, 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 the dregs of the challenges of life from a physical perspective, I have doubts. And she said, I read Pilgrim's Progress and I, and I found that my doubts were like the one who was in the cage in, in Doubting Castle and, and the, the, the cage was a, a prison of doubt. That's why 
Bunyan elected to put in that allegory that very idea, a prison. Doubt is like a prison. And he and his friend were, were in that prison. And then God, only God, in Christian's mind, made him remember, wait a second, the promises of God, like this, like this, he is faithful, he will surely do it. The promises of God are like a key. And I had the key in my pocket the whole time. And what did he do? And then, and then even there, when he was remembering such a thing, God used his friend to be the reminder. Is that not helpful about how we need each other? And so he took that key out of his pocket, the very promises of God, and he put it in the latch and he opened it and they left and they were able to get out of Doubting Castle. Oh, my friends, use verse 24 as the promise of God to you today. He who calls you, calls you to salvation, calls you to be set apart for ultimate sanctification, for definitive sanctification. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do what? What's the it? Sanctify you entirely and keep you blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the it. Is there no greater it? This is all of it. This is the hope of it. That's why unbelievers in their hearts and minds are so lost, and we have compassion on them because of their lostness, because this life is all there is to them. We have a life to come. But if you doubt, and if you're discouraged, and if you ask the question, will God fulfill his promise in calling all of his spiritual children to full and final and complete salvation, to use the imagery of Pilgrim's Progress to go through the river of death? then just know the promise is here. It's in the Word of God, and it is for you, and it is for me. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Rock solid truth from God's Word to your heart and to mine and to that precious lady of mine who is experiencing it right now. Oh, what a joy. It can lift the sails of your faith and you can fly. Fly all the way to the Lord. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, you are faithful. You're the God of faithfulness. You're the God of peace. Oh, you can you can ensure that we make it all the way. This, this God of peace that you are, this holy one, 
will ensure that the holy ones, your spiritual children, will make it. And you're the God of faithfulness. You tell us what the promise of this verse, which is a closing and a letter no less, but it demands and gives us great hope as we ponder it as we stretch it out, as we massage it, as we think of it, as we glorify you because of it. It's just a short phrase, but it is loaded with doctrinal truth and concrete application. God is faithful, and he will surely and righteously and boldly make sure that we are faultless before our God. Fathers, we close the message today. We are reminded of the beautiful words of Jude's letter in his doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever Amen